celebration. Good day. Make your home greener and healthier in one day. The Green Home Expo at greenhomeexpo.org features solar energy, healthy building products, plus a kids' energy workshop and more. Bring your incandescent light bulbs and halogen torsiers to exchange for energy-efficient light bulbs and floor lamps. Free recycling for household batteries, computers, and expired medicines, too. Saturday, April 29th at noon in Berkeley Civic Center Park next to the Farmer's Market. Visit greenhomeexpo.org for more information. This event is a benefit for California Youth Energy Services. Listening to KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Stay with us for cover to cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, today is the 18th of April, 2006. Now, I think of it as an awesome day because, of course, it was a hundred years ago this very day that San Francisco fell down. Yes, the earthquake. I think you've probably heard enough about that on all the radio stations. I, I've had enough of Jeanette McDonald, much as I love her. Uh, it's a bit, it's a bit much, folks. I, I was just in the other room making a tape and, uh, I want to remind you, just in case I forget, it's all about this uh, gospel of Judas. Now, if there's one thing that cheers me up and gets me going, it's iconoclasts and, uh, what is it, assaults on orthodoxy. This is something you should look up. Uh, It's called Jesus Laughed, 17 April 2006. And as I said, I will address it on Thursday morning at 8.20, the New Yorker has Adam Gopnik review the Gospel of Judas and 
a book of commentaries called The Lost Gospel, The Quest for the Gospel of Judas Iscariot. And it's all about the life of Jesus um, as uh, recorded by the guy who ratted him out. Uh, yes, I always think of Judas as the ultimate codependent, right? Anyway, some of the scholars say that it could create a crisis of faith. I think of Dan Brown and all this wonderful nonsense about Mary Magdalene and was that you remember the fuss over the last temptation of Christ and uh, uh, my favorite was always D.H. Lawrence the um, the book The Man Who Died or The Escaped Cock that was the one in which Jesus survives crucifixion and goes on to take a lover the uh, goddess of um, uh, in the temple of Isis and she puts him together like the lost Osiris and uh, <laughs> it, it, it caused a scandal, but that was back in 1926. No, uh, I, I do remember what was the funniest one. Uh, my, my first shock was in college. I had found a picture and put it up in my classroom, and I discovered in my uh, uh, dorm room, and I discovered that several of my classmates um, were serious Christians, and I had offended uh, the picture was by Max Ernst. Uh, the Blessed Virgin chastises the infant Jesus before three witnesses. And in looking through the window, you see the artist. That's Max Ernst. And two of his pals back in uh, the 1920s. And there's this great, rich, luxurious woman dressed in red. And she is whacking this uh, baby boy, his bottom is turned up, and she's giving him a good spanking, but he's a big boy, not a little baby. He looks to be almost, I'd say, five or six, so uh, it isn't exactly child abuse. Anyway, I had this picture up in my dorm room, and uh, my friends were seriously uh, offended. That's when I learned that this is serious stuff, folks, but never mind. Never mind, check out the, the article called Jesus Laughed. Uh, I hope to find those books in time for our next marathon. I really would like to get Judas Iscariot on the record. I think that would be a, a wonderful coup for KPFA. And the next thing I wanted to do today, ah, too much on my plate. Um, I want to send all best blessings and wishes to Claire Birch, who is in Alta Bates. And those of you locals, poets, writers, artists, you know that Claire is all those things and for many, many years has been a documentary filmmaker. Uh, she has done more documents on the homeless than anyone I know. She has amazing films on Jimmy Baldwin, but Claire is seriously ill, so send your blessings over to Alta Bates. Um, <laughs> she has sent me this lovely note saying, here I am in Alta Bates, you know. Here I am dying in Alta Bates, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we hope, Claire, that you're having a beatific trip over there with all those new medications, you know, the ones that promise us a revelation if not a rejuvenation. Ah, yes, I'm going to find some of Claire's poems for next time, and we'll go over those. Uh, 
Oh, in any case, today I had scheduled uh, my favorite American poet, next to Emily Dickinson, of course, my favorite American poet, Gertie Stein. I, I have to go back to Gertie Stein because the earthquake always makes me feel, what is it, like a local. I think of Gertrude and Alice. Alice Talkless was, uh, I think she was over in Oakland, but anyway, she was here for the quake in 1906. And <laughs> her description is charming. She seems to have been almost oblivious to the whole thing. Uh, she did get over to Oakland and uh, view it from afar. She said that her father was stomping around very cross, trying to put things together and sort out uh, the uh, post-quake problems. And he just said, well, this will give us a black eye in the East. <laughs> Indeed, the most fascinating uh, parts of the story for me about the quake are the denial that's, well, the, the, what is it, the need to pretend, you know, that nothing too terrible had happened. That seems to me to be uh, something about human nature. I've thought about it, and uh, it does have an upside. It really does. Some of us cling to our wounds. This is this has been a trend in the therapy generation, you know. Sometimes it seems to me that it is better simply to forget, to put things behind you and to uh, go on. It's the stiff upper lip thing, you know. <laughs> anyway, Gertrude Stein knew all about that. Uh, she said that she was never unhappy and that she had never had an unhappy childhood, but that her brother Leo had discovered he had an unhappy childhood, and that was a very unhappy thing, she said, but she never had an unhappy childhood. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to read you a little essay that I wrote some years ago. Uh, I wrote uh, three essays for a book on women writers. Of course, I had to write three because it's Gertrude, you know, rose is a rose is a rose. She says, say anything three times and it becomes sacred or holy. I'll read part three, the third little essay. It's called Your Little Dog Knows. You remember how Gertrude used to say that masterpieces, <laughs> masterpieces, yes, uh, uh, were written by people, yes, she said, your little dog knows you, yes, as you are your human self, but there is another, there is another self uh, that your little dog is ignorant of. Anyway, the essay begins, Simone de Beauvoir once wrote that we are not born women, we become women. What she meant is that we learn subservience. Gertrude Stein was born a man, and she stayed one. Of course, truth is, she was not always happy and full of herself. She had the conventional crisis early in her psychosexual development. She fell in and fell out of love, as we all do. She did suffer from the isolation and confusion that a young woman who was not only a lesbian, but a thinker and a Jew must suffer if she is to create her own world. So she decided that, all things considered, best plan was to become a genius. This was not in the cards in Baltimore and the other places she might have settled. Nor was it likely in the medical profession, which she escaped at the last moment by virtue of her famous excuse, quote, 
You do not know what it is to be bored. So she headed for Paris and the bohemian life. Basically, she was a bourgeois. She found no contradiction between her financially secure background and the Montmartre milieu in which she matriculated so comfortably. She was not as wealthy as some of her detractors assume. She was once asked why she wore sandals and corduroy skirts. She replied that, well, you could buy pictures or you could buy clothes, and she preferred the pictures. <laughs> All the evidence suggests that Gertrude Stein's lifelong attachment to Alice B. Toklas was one of the great love affairs of the 20th century. Alice lived on for many years after Gertrude's death in 1946. Alice worked until the end of her life in 1967 to promote and protect the literary heritage of this woman she so loved. Alice had the manuscript stored at the Yale Library, and she published where and when she could. She kept up an endless correspondence with editors. It is certainly due to her efforts that Gertrude Stein's place in the history of letters is secure. It's impossible to separate Alice and Gertrude, either in their lives or in their work. I'm not one of those who tries. Alice was only a few years younger than Gertrude. She was born in San Francisco in 1877. Let's see now. Gertrude was born in 1874. Alice lived on for 21 years, planning always for her reunion with Gertrude. She was buried next to Stein with a Catholic service. <sighs> Gertrude, on the other hand, was once heard to remark that when a Jew dies, he's dead. Stein often visits me in my dreams. Once, during a rough period in my life, I dreamt she was clumping around out at the back of my house. She was wearing these great fishing boots, uh... The water, the sea was beating at the back door, and the walls were giving way under the, the rust and then the onslaught of the sea. She demanded, why in hell do you go on living here? Oh, I was so embarrassed, I told her I had nowhere else to go. <laughs> she laughed and she said, then learn to live underwater. She hugged me and went sloshing through the rooms and rooms of my flooded and barnacle-encrusted Victorian house. A sculptor once said Stein had a face like Stonehenge. She's been described as a Buddha, a Roman emperor, and a Girl Scout leader. F. Scott Fitzgerald called her an old covered wagon. Oh, behind her back, of course. For me, Stein is liberty, the spirit of a new age. She asked, why, why don't they read the way I write? That's when I knew she was the one. She wrote, once upon a time, I met myself and ran. <laughs> she ran away from America 
ran away from homophobia and heterosexual roles for women. I have a footnote here. I just can't resist telling you in case you don't have a chance to watch HBO. Last night I was watching The Sopranos and I noticed that they're making a plea for a homosexual character. He finds himself, he's a mobster, of course, he finds himself in New Hampshire and he sees these signs on the license plates that say, live free or die. He's been found out by his mob friends and he's afraid he's going to be whacked. Anyway, he wanders at the end of the episode, he wanders into a shop full of uh, artifacts, antiques, and he picks up the best uh, the best article in the store, something from the arts and crafts period. And the owner of the store points out to him that he's a natural. <laughs> That's the end of the episode. That was awfully sweet, I thought. But each character has a different reaction. Um, the homophobia, of course, shrieks. Fascinating stuff. And I'm so glad that this major, uh, major television show has tackled the issue. They've been very political this last season. A lot of stuff about um, uh, the medical establishment. Uh, a lot of socio-political material. The writers are getting it in for their last season, which is, of course, going to be the darkest yet. Anyway, let me go on with this tale of Gertrude Stein. Gertrude said that Paris was the place that suited those who were to create 20th century art and literature. She wanted to write her way out of the 19th century. The 20th century, she said, is a time when everything cracks. <laughs> like San Francisco, right? Where everything is destroyed, everything isolates itself. It is a more splendid thing, she said than a period where everything follows itself. She always said America was her country, but Paris was her hometown. She said, It wasn't what Paris gave you that mattered so much. It was what Paris didn't take away from you that counted. She wrote her way out of the hierarchy. In... The manuscript Things As They Are, Stein writes, quote, Can't she see things as they are? Not as she would make them, if she were strong enough, as she plainly isn't. Now it had come to her to see, as dying men are said to see, clearly and freely, things as they are and not as she wished them to be. Elsewhere, Stein wrote, quote, Patriarchal poetry makes no mistake. Patriarchal poetry makes no mistake. She knew that real men don't give themselves away. They never drop their script they hang on to the property and the poetry, both. She wrote, quote, Feudal days were the days of the fathers. 
In an essay on poetry and grammar, Stein explains the principle of patriarchy. <laughs> Quote, We still have capital and small letters, and probably for some time we will go on having them, but actually the tendency is always toward diminishing capitals, and quite rightly, because the feeling that goes with them is less and less of a feeling, and so, slowly and inevitably, just as with horses, capitals will have gone away. They will come back from time to time, but perhaps never really come back to stay. Perhaps yes, perhaps not. But really and inevitably, really, it really does not really make any difference. <laughs> I remember how hard we tried to get rid of capital letters back in the 70s. They're back again, folks. I hate to tell you this, but uh, that hierarchical mess, that authoritarian stuff, is back with us, yoking us down. Anyway, uh in Stein's Jazz Riffs and Two Steps, she tells us that we can live without masters, without this phallic symbolism. She is processing anarchy. <laughs> she took an axe to syntax. She said, stories would have to go, just as representative painting has gone. Once we got photography, painting changed. Now we have video, and so, as she predicted, narrative is not needed. She destroyed 19th century word order, just as Walt Whitman destroyed 19th century metrics and verse forms. Stein was an inventor, an American pioneer. She was not interested in what had been done. She wrote, quote, If a thing can be done, why do it? Gertrude's ego has been much maligned. Her colossal self-confidence was not her birthright. She made it up as she went along, right, yes. When in doubt, yes. Uh, what is it? She said, yes, genius is what happens when you're looking for a way out. I remember that line particularly, yes. Now, you know, this is partly... Uh, a put-on. It sprang from her comedic spirit. Uh, as we all know, those outside the heterosexual world must sometimes brazen it out, must deflect criticism and derision and disbelief. Like Oscar Wilde, before her, Gertrude had to create a persona for herself in a world which did not acknowledge a gay humanity or even a lesbian lifestyle. When Oscar Wilde arrived in New York for his famous American lecture tour in 1882, he said he had nothing to declare but his genius. When Gertrude arrived for her lecture tour in 1934, see, half a century later, right, she said much the same thing. As she told a friend, Besides me and Shakespeare, well, who do you see? Gertrude said, her older brother, Leo, thought he was to be the genius in the family, and when it turned out Gertrude was to be the genius, well, he went sour. Leo was dogmatic. Gertrude was, Gertrude was charismatic. Gertrude wrote that Leo said, It was not it, it was I. 
if no one knew me, then the things I did would not be what they were. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that Leo was in some way Gertrude's cast-off self. He was a sort of sketch for what she became. They were very much alike in the beginning. In childhood, there was an attachment, even a symbiosis. Although Gertrude said they never shared their inner lives. I think Brother Leo represents, in his own way, what Gertrude was up against. That is, the patriarchal assumption that genius is, by definition, a masculine quality. There were five children in the Stein family. Daniel and Amelia, the parents, they were German Jews. They planned to have five children. Well, they had five, but two died. And so there was room, Gertrude said, yes. She said it was curious to consider that she and Leo might never have been born. This may have been a bond in the beginning, in the days when they were the two youngest and most pampered of the family. They outgrew each other in time, yet there was still a resemblance in old age. Mabel Dodge, the famous Mabel Dodge, she said Leo was an old ram, and Gertrude, she added, <laughs> had a laugh like a beefsteak. Leo and Gertrude were not sorry to go their separate ways. There's a letter from Leo written to his friend Howard Gans. Let's see, the date is in 1946. The letter's all about himself and his ingrown neurotic themes and his identity crisis at age 74 and about having written the book of the future. Yes, wrote it on a 1915 Corona typewriter. Mm-hmm. This book is apparently all about what religion is not. Most curious is his postscript. P.S. I just saw in Newsweek that Gertrude was dead of cancer. It surprised me, for she seemed of late to be exceedingly alive. I can't say it touches me. I had lost not only all regard, but all respect for her. Uh, I found that letter in a book called Journey into the Self, Letters of Leo Stein, 1872 to 1947 letters, right. Okay. Leo died the next year, the year after Gertrude. There's a foreword to this book, Journey into the Self, written by Mabel Weeks, in which she states that she thinks that Leo's work, yes, will endure long, long after Gertrude's work is forgotten. See, he wrote articles for the New Republic, and he wrote a book called Appreciation. (laughs) She writes, Leo may appear as the more significant of the two when time has weakened the impress of Gertrude's remarkable personality. Well, there you see what happens in history. (laughs) What was it? Virginia Woolf said, All those awful books have to be there. So the great ones float. Uh, By the time Leo moved out of their home in Paris, Gertrude had found Alice B. Talkless. Leo had become a third wheel. And let's see, my essay goes on at great length to talk about uh, Leo and, uh, what is it, his misogyny. 
Oh dear, poor man. Here he had this pose, you see, as a free thinker. Think, think how difficult it must have been for a man in the first half of the 20th century. You know, because they had all that ingrained misogyny to the marrow of their bones, but they were trying to be free thinkers. Well, next time I will read you some more about Gertrude Stein. I think I should devote my entire April history, April Poetry Month, to Gertrude. Check out Thursday morning at 8:20 when I will try to talk about、uh, these new assaults on Orthodox religion. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Internationally acclaimed Guzheng soloist Liu Weishan will be featured in an exciting benefit concert for the San Francisco Guzheng Music Society. The event will take place on April 22nd, 7 p.m. at the Herbst Theater, 401 Venice Avenue in San Francisco. The event will feature renowned dancer Xiao Peihe, percussionist Wei Wang, Gaohu artist Thomas Lee, harpist Diana Stork, and Chapin Stick artist. Ted Rockwell. Liu Weishan is well known for her traditional rendering of the Guzheng, the predecessor to the Japanese koto. Come experience the flavors of East and West. For more ticket information, please contact 415-668-8111. And you're listening to KPFA, KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. Stay with us for free speech radio news.